Hi, everyone, and welcome to The Legend of Portal Cast, a podcast dedicated to Avatar The Last Airbender, Legend of Korra, and all things Avatar. Um, this was going to be round two, but because I forgot to start recording five minutes in, it is now round three, folks. That I am back here with Fran from A Healthy Dose of Fran. Welcome back again. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for having me back. Um, it's a pleasure to come back um, multiple times. <laughs> uh, so, folks, uh, Fran is going to be joining me today. We're going to be talking about uh, one of the Avatar The Last Airbender graphic novels, The Search. Uh, this was the graphic novel that answered the long-awaited question of who and what happened to Zuko's mom. Uh, we get a lot of really cool information with this story, and uh, it was broken in three parts. Uh, the overarching tale takes place over these three kind of individually released comics, and then they put together a kind of unibus version uh, where it's all together, all in one. We're going to be talking about part one today. Uh, the things to kind of, we're going to keep in mind throughout this series are a few things. Uh, first and foremost is Zuko's evolution as the Fire Lord. Mm. Second, uh, Azula's journey through madness. Mm -hmm. uh, three is going to be piecing together the shards of the past. And four is the influence of Ozai and Ursa on both of them. Mm. So this story was written by Jean Luen Yang, art and cover by Guru Hiru, lettering by Michael Heisler, and was released in 2013. Uh, this was the second of their graphic novels that they released. Uh, definitely felt they were hitting their stride getting into this one after The Promise. And speaking of The Promise, this picks up right after the events of The Promise, uh, which the first graphic novel... Uh, happened in Yudao, a former Fire Nation colony, newly liberated after the war, and it became a point of contentment as the residents who had come to see themselves as Fire Nation were unhappy with returning to the Earth Kingdom. The book concluded with a great clash between Zuko and the Fire Nation and the Earth Kingdom. However, they resolved things peacefully and proposed forming a new United Republic of Nations where the colonies once dwelt. Uh, Obviously, the stepping stones to what we see as the United Republic of Nations in Legend of Korra. So again, mm. they're building all the pieces with this. It's really cool. Yeah. So this story opens up with white text over a black background that says, wait, I want to know everything. Everything? Everything. For you, my dear, I'll start from the beginning. The first scene opens up with a sepia tone, fashioned after the typical look for an Avatar World flashback. Uh, a young man is rehearsing with a mask on, then he gets spooked by a young woman uh, named Ursa. <laughs> she questions how Ikem, uh, the mighty dragon emperor, hero of love amongst the dragons, could be scared. Uh, and we get our first reference to the renowned play that Zuko mentions in Ember Island Players, citing how they butchered the play every year, yet his mother <laughs> always went to go take them. So th mm. this was such a nice little kind of immediate nod because we know that mm. that play always had some kind of significance for Ursa, but now we get to see where that where the dots are connected. And mm. uh, it's so good. Totally. So... Ursa got the leading role, uh, and Ikem is overjoyed that he'll get to 
kiss her in front of the whole village. Hashtag small village goals. <laughs> um, and the, he then asks her to marry him. She agrees and they kiss. And it's a brief, sweet moment. Mm, very brief because um, we kind of know what, what's coming. So it's nice to start with something happy and lovely. And then you remember, oh, damn, this is this is Ursa. Mm-hmm. This this is not gonna end well, is it? And the tragedy is coming. The tears are coming. Joy is lost. Um, whereas angsty is Zuko, and then we remember we've got an entire book yes. left after that for more heartstrings to be pulled, more tears to be spilt, and life to be just an empty ball of emotions. <laughs> Where you're just kind of locked in a corner, curled up into a ball, crying over oh, the love amongst the dragons play and the true significance of what it had to Ursa and then to Zuko. And it's just too much to handle. I just can't. It, Fran, here I thought I was affected by the audio going missing. This is, it, it clearly has affected you in a profound level. I just have a lot of feelings. <laughs> so one of the things that you had mentioned last time too is that um, one of the notes in the library edition, Jean mentions how Ursa's hometown, uh, Hirara, which we kind of debated on how we were going to pronounce that, and that's what we settled on. Um and how it's kind of related to Hawaii and uh, how the fact that the Fire Nation is based on 20th century Japan. Uh, so mm. they based it on areas that Japanese immigrants would have migrated to, hence the Hawaiian feel. Oh, um, yeah. So it shifts back to the present. We see Ang and Sokka listening to an old Earth Kingdom man, literally just saying blah, blah, blah in the comic text um, oh, as, God. as he is sharing wisdom of old forms of Earth Kingdom governments uh, to help them decide what to do with Yu Dao, uh, the city that was, of course, the focus of the events of the promise. Mm. Uh, <laughs> Katara calls oh. him out for not paying attention and throws snow in Sokka's face, <laughs> which she does multiple times throughout this story. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, but in this moment, she distracts Zuko as he kind of looks off to the side. Then he looks back and he asks the man to repeat what he last said. Um, <laughs> I love this old man. It's just like, ah, teenagers, even if they're the royal family, they're still not going to listen to you. <laughs> <laughs> so he says, there's an ancient Earth Kingdom philosophy. Family is in essence a small nation. And the nation, a large family. In treating his own family with dignity, a ruler learns to govern his nation with dignity. And this is mm. clearly resonating with Zuko. So what were some of your thoughts uh, kind of seeing that and seeing the way that Zuko initially reacted to that? Well, I think it was definitely an interesting choice as to how Zuko reacts to it. Just because what we know of the Fire Nation as a whole is that they weren't taught to treat people as equals or to treat people so kind of like how we know in like our world that like, treat people how you'd want to treat uh, how you would want them to treat you in the fine nation world especially for the fine nation royal family the way in which zuko and azula would have grown up is to believe that every person who isn't royal 
is beneath them. They are a subject. They are meant to submit to them because they are a ruler. They are literally the most powerful beings in the Fire Nation. They don't treat people as their equals. They don't treat their nation as a family because they're not their subjects. Mm. So to see Zuko kind of reacting to this and having this moment of, wow, I kind of never thought about that before and just having that moment of understanding that maybe that's where we've been going wrong and then kind of comparing that to his ideas of family and how really with Uncle Iroh as well, his ideas of what a family is is different to what it was when he was growing up. Mm. And so we start to think maybe he's going to use this knowledge considering he's focused on that a lot and he has this moment of sort of doubt and look of uh don't even uh what's the word i'm trying to think of the word for it um deep thought i guess that's that's it's not the right word but it's the closest i can come up with now yeah um, no, he, I feel <laughs> it's a momentary deep thought <laughs> about family and ruling um, and this idea of dignity as well, this is something that I kind of noticed before until uh, you read it just now. Dignity is a theme that is used throughout, especially in this first part of the search. Dignity is brought up on so many different occasions throughout by Zuko. So I think this idea of dignity and treating people with dignity really, really resonated with him. Kind of because what happened to him as a kid he wasn't treated with dignity. He had no sense of dignity. He was a banished prince. Mm. So it's kind of extra resonating with him because his family didn't treat him with dignity other than Iroh. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, because of what he went through in The Promise, I mean, that was one of his first kind of trials uh, that he had to really go through as a Fire Lord. Um, and he came out okay, uh, you know, it all ended up okay in the end, but it was harrowing for him. And that was just as a leader. And now suddenly he has to think about not only the future of his nation, but also the future of his family too. And I think that that's what's, it's a great setup for what we're going to see uh, in this story. So it goes back to Ursa. Uh, we see her running joyfully through the village, uh, but she returns to find her mother crying, saying that a visitor is out back and that she loves her daughter. We see Fire Lord Azulon standing at a beautiful garden, talking about how it had taken such a long time to find the descendants of Avatar Roku, as if he didn't want them to be found. He clearly wants one thing. A strong bending bloodline in Ursa as a vessel to make that happen. Mm. This whole setup, I want to dive into it because this is an idea of securing bloodlines um, and marriage and everything like that. We've always kind of seen that throughout our own history. We've mm. seen what happens, especially it comes more with political power, you know, a mm prince will marry someone from a different kingdom and those two kingdoms will either have a trade agreement or they will do something that will kind of bolster 
both of their nations in some way, or one will get more than the other. Here, this is about literal power. Mm. The the power that came from Avatar Roku in his bloodline mixed with Azulon in his bloodline. And basically trying to create the most powerful firebending spawn. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Yeah, I never really thought of it like that. That's basically what they're doing. It's like, oh god, there's a film that I'm thinking of now. Um, oh, you know what I'm thinking of, actually? This isn't the film that I was originally thinking of, because I can't remember what that one was. You know Shrek 2, where the fairy godmother is, like, making that, like, potion spell thing, and is, like, basically manic and crazy, and she ends it with, and a little bit of lust. And it's, like, really sort of, like, creepy and, like, evil-looking. And then she does that evil laugh as, like, a giant heart potion cloud thing comes up. That is 100% what I'm picturing now when, like, <laughs> Azulon <laughs> was thinking, how can I make my son Ozai have super powerful children? A little bit of Roku, a little bit of me, <laughs> mix it together. What have you got? Bibbidi-bobbidi, a ridiculously powerful child. <laughs> wow, Fran, I'm so impressed with how you legitimately brought Shrek into this podcast to make <laughs> point that was beautiful <laughs> uh i think the film are you thinking of gattaca maybe i don't know i think my brain kind of like had a moment of like oh this is a reference mm. we don't want to tell you what the reference is but we know that there is one so i kind of can't remember exactly what it is it may be that one yeah so it's it's a film that basically deals a lot with uh this question of like genetic modification in engineering the idea of kind of going in and determining what types of traits your child is going to have before they're even born. Um, uh. And this idea of like finding the best traits that you can for them and all of the philosophical questions that that, you know, brings up. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, very much in a similar sense. I, I, I personally like Bibbidi Bobbidi Boop. There's Azula and Zuko. I mean, I think that that's <laughs> much better. <laughs> Um, and, uh, yeah, so obviously this is like, it, it is a horrible thing to see, but at the same time, for what type of era that this is kind of mimicking in terms of our own history, mm, this type of royal history, yeah, this type of thing was incredibly common. Um, and it happened a lot. Um, but it like for this, this is what's so interesting because it's like, it is them, they are finding a commoner because she is a descendant of this incredibly, incredibly powerful being or, mm. you know, firebender. So it's just like adds kind of an interesting layer to it. Oh, totally. So we go back to the present. Uh, now we are at the Fire Nation prison, the one that we infamously saw Iroh uh, in for the first half of uh, season three of Avatar and where Ozai was eventually locked up. Um, Zuko has returned there, um, and the prison that holds Ozai now has Azula there as well. Um, she is sitting in a chair in a straitjacket um, as the Kyoshi warriors kind of uh, prep Zuko for what's coming. Um, 
in the the kind of quick little segue I want to have here before we dive into the scene with Ozai and Azula and Zuko is that we get this really wonderful bit of dialogue between Zuko and Suki um, where she is basically we, we kind of talked about this in our last recording how like the Suki and Zuko really are two of like the most mature individuals in terms of what they have seen on the ground how war has affected people and there's this great bit of dialogue. Uh, Suki says, the Yudao Summit seems to have done you some good. You're more upbeat. And Zuko says, than my usual dour self? She says, no, I didn't say that. I'm, we're glad to have you back, Zuko. And Suki just has such a big heart. And she clearly mm-hmm. sees what Zuko is going through, I think, more so than others. And I think, as we said, especially as a fellow older teen. Yeah. Who also has quite a bit of angst in her life. Yes. <laughs> her and Zuko have enough angst to have that bond. But also a lot of life experience as a whole. Like, I think this is something we kind of half forget about Suki. Is that she was in a Fire Nation prison as a young woman. Yes. For gosh knows how long. I'd say maybe maybe a couple of months, possibly. Because we don't really know much about the timeline around that period, but because it was, it was book two that we see, uh, um, Upper's Lost Day, we Lost Days, we see her being taken by Azula, pretty much, which is book two. So yeah, it must be a couple of months she would have been in that Boiling Rock prison. Like, who knows what she went through there? Like, she definitely seems changed when we see her again in book three. So it'd be interesting to see if that darkness is kind of what's bonding them together. They've both gone through something horrifically traumatic. Zuko being burnt and banished, her being locked up as a young woman in a prison for whoever whoever knows how long and whoever knows what may have happened. And for them to then have this moment of they've gotten past this, they've gotten onto something better in their lives, they've gotten past this area of war and she's now a protector again she's now protecting someone who will make a difference and who originally was one of the people who led to trauma in her life and now they're kind of that they're friends now i think that's just really lovely that we get to see their relationship and their friendship grow absolutely i i especially love the point that you brought up uh about her I, I didn't even think about that you you always forget about that is that she was in a fire nation prison and not only a prison like it, it was the most secure prison it was mm. like it meant to destroy all hope um yeah and the fact that she made it through that got to the other side is astounding mm. but obviously everyone has kind of the scars that they bring from that whatever their experiences so we go back to zuko um, he is entering the cell with some tea, saying how, you know, there's still his family, that he wants to at least try to do this. Um, Ozula immediately bites on the tray and flings it across the room as Ozai looks on smiling. Um, Azula lashes out and Tylee quickly chi blocks her, prompting Azula to look up at her old friend and ask, Tell me how she got to you in May. How'd she make you lose your fear of me? And... Zuko is going in to lend some dignity to the situation. Again, that's coming up again. But Azula mm. asks to speak with Ozai privately, and 
Zuko allows it. He leaves and Tylee says, she's wrong, you know. I never lost my fear of her. Mm. The the dynamic between all these characters here is just fantastic. Like the quietly boding, uh, foreboding, boding, that's not a word, is it? Foreboding Ozai in the corner, watching everything unfold and enjoying the chaos of it. Azula, who's continuing to lash out and then still somehow with her mind and knowing what's going on but then also losing her mind in a, in a sense in another moment then hers and Tylee's dynamic in their relationship is just fascinating and the fact that they grew up together as well is really interesting that Tylee has this huge sense of fear of her because even in the flashbacks that we have of them like playing in the um, royal palace gardens it never looks like she's actually afraid of Azula so I, it kind of makes me wonder what led to that moment of her actually beginning to fear someone that she grew up with and then the, the psychosis as a whole like I, 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 I'll probably bring this up like throughout a lot I'm not the biggest fan of like how intense and over dramatic it comes across with Azula's psychosis, but um, is I still do wonder where this idea of someone else influencing people's reactions towards her and people's betrayal towards her, like how did that come about? How did this idea come about? Like was it Ozai? Was it someone else? Or uh, what? <laughs> well, I think, and uh, you know, we mentioned it last time, and I, I, mm. I would definitely love uh, again to recommend anyone to check out um, Hello Future Me's uh, Tim Hickson's uh, video that he did on mm. the psychology of Azula. Um, one of the points that he brings up that I think really hits the nail on the head for this is that the uh, Azula suffers from delusions, uh, delusions of grandeur. Uh, she has this very, very a uh, specific way that she views herself. Uh, she knows that she is incredible at everything that she does. She holds herself to an incredibly high standard. And when she suddenly has what she believes is her world worldview starting to crumble around her, that control that she has over everything, that she is always fighting so hard to maintain is out of her hands those delusions shift from something that is more about herself in a positive light to something in a negative light um mm. i i mean paraphrasing the hell out of it um but it's essentially kind of where she starts to see ursa and where she starts to think that someone is sabotaging her it is this delusion that she is plagued by and it's it's incredibly sad and we'll 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 see throughout this story i i agree with you it's it's sad to see her like this distraught and this uh, portrayed in this way but at the same time it's like you how can you equate anyone else who has ever been through anything remotely like this mm, having true. that like incredible amount of power and seeing like having that power taken away from you everything that you know is just taken from you and you are in such a helpless position and you're only 14 years old yeah Ugh. 
so we get back to Ursa. Uh, Ursa is uh, riding in the carriage with Azulon and Ozai. And Azulon talks about how crappy of a town she lives in Ugh. and that the capital will be much better, afford her better better niceties. They're stopped by Ica, standing in the middle of the road with swords drawn. The guards mock his theater props, but he straight up handles them for the first bit, but he is soon overwhelmed. Ursa begs Ozai to call the guards off. She even says, please, my love, knowing full well that these are hollow words. Mm. Ozai stops them and Ursa rushes out. Ikem says that no matter what they're offering her, it's not worth it. That They belong together. And finally saying, tell me marrying that that prince is what you truly want. Tell me, and I'll go home. She says, Fire Prince Ozai honored my family by asking for my hand in marriage. I joyfully accepted. Now for your sake and mine, go home. Mm. Tears pouring down her face as Icom is left standing in the street. Ugh. Such a poignant moment as well. Just everything about that leading up to that moment is just so intense. Like, the fact that they were actually going to kill this random citizen, as this random civilian, well, random being the operative word, just for being in the way of the carriage and for kind of having these theatre props and just trying to kind of stop them but obviously not really going to have the power to do it. And that they were actually going to consider killing him for doing that. It's just, it's insane to think about that that amount of power that they could kill a civilian and there'd be no issue. Like no one would question it. Maybe even no one would even know. Like the amount of power that the royal family has. That would not surprise me in the least. I mean, it's just that the... At this point in the Fire Nation's history, we saw how much that they influenced information to students in the, mm. the headband episode of Avatar. Yeah, I mean, it would not surprise me in the least if they just would just make people disappear who mm. disagreed with them or got in their way. Yeah. Uh, Man, these guys suck. <laughs> they do. That is that is the biggest takeaway that we get from this whole graphic novel series is that we thought Ozai sucked already he sucks way more than we thought he ever did <laughs> and like this book is just like he is a he is he is a total piece of garbage let's yeah. let's look at all of he's his garbage he's worse than garbage yes. he's less than garbage <laughs> so oh. we get to um, Zuko and Azula uh, Zuko is pushing Azula in her wheelchair and he tells Suki and Ty Lee that it's okay to leave them and Ty Lee's like my dude like chi blocking <laughs> is gonna wear off please be careful yeah. <laughs> oh, and, and Zuko tells his sister that he's going to have her room prepared so that she's not living in an institution anymore but still guarded at every moment this is Zuko trying to mend things Mm. And something that really stood out to me too, revisiting this that I didn't think of last time is that we 
you think about the way that Zuko and Azula always acted around each other before. Zuko was either terrified, distrustful, and always on his guard with her. Here, he is letting his guard down. And he is trying to extend an olive branch, even though he knows full well that he might just get burned. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't take long for Zula to break <laughs> out of her straight jacket and just attack oh, Zuko and flee. Yeah. <laughs> this boy never learns. Zula <laughs> is too smart for her own good. Mm. But, oh my god. I just love that, though, that, like, even while incarcerated, even while having her mind, in a sense, turn against her at, at points, she still has these moments of utter pure genius. And I just, just she just has such skills. And um, just with with Zuko, though, I think he spent too much time with Aang. He's um he's become far too trusting. Like yeah, he needs to spend more time with Sokka. Sokka has no trust. He has no sense of uh, people can change. We're in enemy territory now. Those are enemy birds. <laughs> so after this uh, kind of escape from Azula, it shifts back to the uh, flashback, and we see Ikem by himself venturing into an old forest, distraught but surviving. He's a non-bender, so he has to be even more resourceful. Mm. You see him kind of making a fire. His beard is growing long. And while sitting by his fire, he looks across the water of a pond. He sees a giant spirit wolf drinking. It shifts back. And Zuko is now chasing Azula and eventually discovers a hidden room. Uh, Inside is a trophy room of some sort, with outfits and knickknacks from the Four Nations, including the Air Nomads, which is just, like, incredibly sad, because you know that it's just, like, these are just spoils of war in the worst way. And, as Azula says, it's one of Ozai's many secret chambers. Mm. Azula holds a letter, or she holds multiple letters in her hand claiming that they were written by their mother and that they're the key to finding her. She tells Zuko to come over and read them, but as soon as he takes a step forward, she ignites them. But pointedly, with one still intact behind her back, Zuko yells out in despair, and he's like, Asula, what's wrong with you? She responds by saying, why don't you ask her that? I'm sure she'd be happy to tell you. Azula says that she'll tell him about the contents of the letter, but on one condition. I love that she has these ultimatums. Okay. I I say it all the time. I've said it both here. I've said it to everyone who gives me the time to be able to rant about Avatar. Um, (laughs) When Azula is able to get the help that she needs for her mental health, she must and should and will, in my headcanon, become Zuko's Fire Lord advisor. Because not only does she know how to negotiate, she understands how to bargain. She knows clearly a lot more about the Fire Nation, the Royal Palace, and everything about that than Zuko does. 
I'm surprised actually, I know that she's obviously in in her mind at the moment, but in The Promise, when he goes and asks Ozai for advice, I'm surprised she doesn't go and ask Azula. Like, she has so much more knowledge, I would say, about the Fire Nation and how the Fire Nation works and got out to go see the world more so than Ozai did. So she's so much more knowledgeable than Ozai. So like her knowledge is going to be tenfold she's gonna help bring a better world to the fire nation and also i like the idea of her being an auntie to um azumi in the future <laughs> yes <laughs> you know and the thing is i think it's like i think for zuko it was he had the experience with his dad when he was younger then ang defeated him took his bending away but with Azula, Zuko, it's I feel like it's still fresh. She legitimately mm. almost killed him. And yeah. it like almost killed Katara and almost brought ruin to the Fire Nation itself. And I think for him, it's just he'd be more hesitant because I think it's probably just one of those things where he's you know he doesn't feel like he needs to. And that's where this whole idea of dignity comes in. That he mm. wants to give Azula that chance. So it shifts back to our flashback and now we see the wedding of Ursa and Ozai. We see a few frames of their wedding and all throughout she is looking really, really sad while Mm. Ozai is looking excited. Ozai notes that Ursa has lovely parents uh, to which Ursa agrees. It's like, oh, it's a nice compliment, Ozai. And then, you know, she's like, they've always been good to me. And Ozai is like, well, be sure to tell them that because you want to make sure your last words to them are filled with gratitude and kindness. And he goes on to explain that a princess of the Fire Nation will have to sever all ties to her past and devote herself entirely to her new duties. He finishes by saying, you belong to the royal family now and to me. Ursa looks on in horror. Mm. Mm. He sucks. He sucks. Yeah. I feel like that, um, and to me, just as as a big <gasps> sort of uh, reaction here because um, this guy needs to, it, this guy deserves to have someone vomit in his face. Uh, like, it's, it's a horrific image to have, but like, it's the least he deserves. He's a oh my god! He's just such a horrible human being. Yeah. From a, the moment when you say he says that nice comment about her family, you're like, oh okay. We know he's a horrible dude because he's he's Ozai. We know what he's going to be like. But you have this moment of oh maybe he wasn't actually so bad in the start. Who? Next comment afterwards. Okay, no, he is just generally a horrible, horrific human being who deserves all horrible things to happen to him and no happiness whatsoever. And again, it's this idea of the like this royal privilege that comes in, uh, being able to take someone out from their life and uh, have ownership of them. And it's yeah. very much it's very much also a reinforcement of the Fire Nation as a patriarchy as well. That mm. women are possessions to to these men. And it's it's interesting because I feel like it is also more of a systemic problem that springs from 
Sozen in his specific line. Because what we see in like Rise of Kyoshi is that mm-hmm. like like Rangi's mom Heiron is like she was like the head of the Fire Nation Academy and that women seemingly had like a lot more important roles and everything and you could mm-hmm. say that some of them still did in this kind of version of the Fire Nation but I feel like there's a lot more misogyny and patriarchy that we see in the Fire Nation in Avatar the mm-hmm. Last Airbender and especially in these comics uh, kind of oh, looking back totally. at the flashbacks. Totally. And it kind of gives this idea of like, um, uh, like we see it in um, Legend of Korra Turf Wars as well, when it's brought in that before Fire Lord Sozin, like homosexuality was completely accepted. But the moment he did come into power and he started to change the way in which the Fire Nation was, homosexuality became something that was basically completely illegal. Um, so I'm, you're definitely right. I, I, I agree completely that it's Sozin's reign that changed things for the worse and it is just so sad just to see what is happening to Ursa because we know obviously what does happen or at least what we know currently happens to Ursa in Zuko's story but to see what led to that happening is just devastating that She's literally cut off from everything that she knows, everyone that she loves, because she's now property. And we kind of still see it now in royal families now, like the whole Meghan Markle situation. Like, mm. pe- like she was treated horrifically by the press. She seemingly wasn't treated great by the royals either. Um, and the moment that obviously... Harry, being the good guy that he is, wants to support his wife and his family because they're his family. Everyone is then turned against them as a whole because they're going against seemingly what is the royal status quo. And it kind of has that sort of feel here that she is going into this way of thinking and if she were to deviate from it as we see a little in future, it goes horrifically, horrifically wrong. Mm. Yeah. Well, l- thankfully, the British royal family are not a bunch of, like, you know, crazy firebenders um, who God, b- burn their children or anything. So that's that's at least a pro. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've got one. We've got one pro. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, we go back to the Fire Nation palace. Aang and the gang, minus Toph, arrive to the palace. They're greeted by Iroh uh, after uh, having received a message from Zuko requesting their help um he reveals that he knows where his mother is but that the information came at a cost as azula is lurking in the background katara immediately water bends ice shards towards her as azula casually dodges them and azula then proceeds to mock sokka's boomerang and before things get more heated Suki and Tylee rush out to stop them. I love how, like, Sokka is just getting so puffed up. And then as soon as he sees Suki, he's like, Suki! And he just completely <laughs> forgets about anything. <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> young love. <laughs> so Zuko explains that because Azula helped him, that she will be traveling unbound and with dignity. Mm, uh, Aang- that's the word? Mm-hmm. Aang and Sokka, of course, are not thrilled about this, um, but it's Iroh who says, 
Ever since my nephew ascended to the throne, he has yearned for peace. Finding Ursa may bring that peace, and not just for himself. As we see Azula in the background, Aang looks over and agrees to help his friend. Uh, I think it's it's really interesting this that, that Iroh is the person to kind of help show Aang, and, specifically Aang, because obviously Aang's, Aang's the, the leader um, in this situation. He's gonna What he says at current kind of goes for everyone else. But to see Iroh finally now supporting Azula in a sense, considering he did kind of leave her in the past he left this how old would she have been at the time a, a 10 11 year old girl at the mercy of ozai for three three nearly four years wasn't it yeah Th- yeah something like that at the mercy of ozai who he knew was a horrific and horrible person and he's kind of seen what it's led to her becoming and to go from what he was at the start of um uh, well not the start of within book two of um avatar of saying she's crazy and needs to go down Mm. to now saying maybe it'll bring her some peace i just think it's it just shows that not only has he continued to change and grow as a person even as an adult and someone who we consider to be the wisest upon wise he kind of is now realising that he still has made mistakes in the past and he's hoping that maybe him doing this and convincing Aang and the others to go along with it will help make up for what he did by leaving Azula at Ozai's mercy. And I just think it's lovely. Mm, Absolutely. So Aang uh, decides to say how it's a beautiful day for a trip. And Azula's like, be careful with my bags on your shaggy beast. <laughs> Everyone jumps to defend Appa. And it's just like, Azula, like, girl, why? Like, don't, don't, don't be hating on Appa. Everybody loves Appa. <laughs> and they talk about taking turns to uh, watch her. And Sokka immediately is ready for the challenge. But as soon as he takes out his boomerang and is, like, waving it in front of her, she fires, like, the tiniest little bit of lightning at him, and he just drops it. Oh, God. (laughs) And Aang proceeds to encase her feet in earth, and Katara freezes her hand. Uh, Everyone is clearly very jumpy. Uh, But to be fair, uh, you know, Azula didn't really do that much. No. It was just such a like little thing and I personally saw this moment as a cheeky response from Azula and I I imagined a world where she could do that and they just thought that she was a crab, not a monster, that she was this advisor to Zuko. Like that that's yeah. like that's the side of Azula that I keep wanting to see. We get glimpses of what it could be in this story. But mm. unfortunately, it never quite makes it there because she yeah. is in desperate need of help. Mm. No, totally. And it, yeah, it's like what you said. I mean, if someone was waving a weapon in my face, like, I'd do the same. <laughs> I mean, I'd probably do it worse. I, I don't have... I'm, I'm easily annoyed, so I'd probably take it a bit too far. <laughs> Me and Azula would clearly get on great, like... <laughs> mm. 
So the the gang flies ahead, and Ang and Katara have some PDA that gives Sokka the oogies. Um, again, really showcasing how much better their relationship was shown in Imbalance versus in these books. They're like such like young teenage love in this, and it's just like, all right, guys. <laughs> Just calm it down, guys. Calm yeah. it down. Uh, but the mood is suddenly shifted as Azula asks, So tell me, kids, I've been dying to know. Which of you miscreants did she approach first? None of you met me yet. How did she convince you to ruin my life? <laughs> tell me, kids, and says then- <laughs> the 14-year-old girl. <laughs> Zuko proceeds to do one of the weirdest intimidating things where he raises a heated fist towards her as they showcase it like in a single frame just his hands sizzling <laughs> and he tells her that's enough um but again it, it really it, she's like it's just small talk and it, again this made me sad to see it's another reaction where everyone elevates the situation but again you can't blame them after everything mm. that azula has done to them it's just it's hard you can't just immediately uh, dismiss those feelings mm. that have been so entrenched by someone who is literally trying to kill you so yeah. many times. <laughs> no, totally. So they approach uh, Hira, Ursa's village. Uh, Aang starts reacting to some kind of spirit, his face contorted in rage. Um, and they spy a wolf spirit running below. And Azula is now standing on the edge of Appa's saddle and proceeds to jump off. Oh my god. Aang attempts to save her and she then burns a hole in his glider and he's just like, hey, this was a gift! He's like... (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god. uh, And Azula books it um, as she gets to the ground and Zuko gives chase as uh, Katara and Sokka go to help Aang. Azula crosses a river And her mother's reflection calls out to her. You're only you're hurting yourself. You're only hurting yourself, my daughter. Azula tells her to not pretend like she cared and that she finally figured out the truth. You've been conspiring to take me down from the day I was born. Even when I was an infant, you saw something in me that you never had. Power. That's why you think I'm a monster. My power makes you fear me. Azula continues on saying how she can't figure out how Ursa got to her friends, how she told Katara how to beat her, but that none of it matters anymore. With the letter that she takes out, she says that she has what she needs to take the throne from Zuko. Mm. Let's talk about this moment. Thoughts? I think, oh, okay. This is, this is something new that I've noticed and it's, when she says how she got to her friends, I think this is the first time we, we're prop. It may not be. It's been a while since I've watched the series as a whole with, with all the Azula parts. I think this is the first time we're hearing her refer to Tylee and, and May as, as her friends. Like, before, the way in which lots of people interpreted her relationship with Tylee and May is that of her being the leader in them, her subjects, and her treating them as subjects. Mm. But in this case, we're seeing that she actually had a genuine connection and care for them to consider them to be her friends. So it kind of shows this human side of her in a way that she did have friends, she did have 
these relationships that were clearly important to her because their betrayal is what led to her eventual downfall. Like they were so integral to her life that them going against her is what led to her falling. It's just, it's fascinating to see that clearly the relationship is different than what we would have first interpreted it as. Mm. Yeah, it's just something I just noticed now, just that she got to her friend's part. Um, So I had to say it. (laughs) No, it is interesting because it's just, I, I don't think she ever refers to them as friends. I think you're right. I mean, and clearly there's a connection there. And I think it's just like, this is a a time of Azula being very, very vulnerable because I think that she is just open in a way that she does not like, but she has to be when she's confronted with these visions of her mother. Mm. So we we see that Zuko finally catches up and Azula uh, says that he needs her, but she doesn't really need him. But Katara comes in, she freezes her, and Azula soon looks on in horror as the spirit wolf locks eyes with her. We switch to the flashback. We see Ursa writing a letter and then stashing it in her robe as she looks on to the masks from her days of acting with Ikem. Notably, one of the ones included is the mask of the blue spirit. Mm. Um Nice little, nice little touch there. And she covers the indent in the wall with the masks with a painting of her in Ozai as there's a knock on the door. Such a symbolic just action here that we see that her mm. past covered up by this painting of her in Ozai, this idealistic version of them that is really just a mask for who she really is. Mm. And there's masks on masks layers <laughs> like onions see oh my god look at yes. this we're bringing in shrek all over the place here <laughs> <laughs> onions have layers and so do masks <laughs> so little zuko comes in and he says he hasn't he had a nightmare where azula was burning everything <laughs> and her comforts him telling him that uh you know hey it's okay they'll pass but when the good dreams do happen Hang on to them with all your might. Ursa then proceeds to tuck Zuko in and meet with an old woman named Elua. And she gives her the letter, asking that it be securely delivered back to her old village like all the others. Elua takes the letter, reads it, and looks on in shock. She delivers it to Ozai. Ah. Ozai is training, and as he as he is approached, she says that this letter is different from the others because it holds a great secret. Ozai reads it and says, "That's impossible." <laughs> you see, because we had Mark Hamill voicing Ozai, we just needed like that you know audio of just him from Empire Strikes Back. No. <laughs> No, no, that's impossible. <laughs> okay, guys, YouTubers with the ability to edit, get on this. <laughs> and, you know, it's just, it's so sad to see that Elua is loyal to Ozai. It's not surprising, mm. but it's just like, it's so sad that even 
Ursa can't get these letters out. And that, mm. uh, like, and the, the point, too, is that Ozai tells her to stash it with the others. Yeah. And he has all of these all set aside. And he's just waiting to use them as emotional blackmail at some yeah. point. Mm. It's just, it's so horrible. It's just the fact that she she's believing that her family and Icom must be getting these letters. And she's so, it's the one thing that's giving her hope. And you're right, like Ozai is probably waiting for the last moment to use this to destroy any hope that she may have had left. And like the most opportune moment. And it's just, it's just, it's, yeah, it's horrible to mm. see and to know that. Mm. So we switch back to the present. Uh, Aang is trying to get a handle on the spirit wolf uh, peacefully, but continually fails as everyone begins to panic. Uh, but then Appa swoops in. Um, and I love how Sokka in this moment goes, all right, giant spirit animal mega brawl. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. He's really, he... really channeling his Earth Rumble 6 enthusiasm here. Yeah. <laughs> a, I feel like also he'd be... If if this was Monday, he definitely would have been like a Power Rangers or like Transformers sort of fan. Just like yeah. <laughs> yes, he would be. Who do you who do you think that's uh, who would you think would be uh, Sokka's either favorite Power Ranger or favorite Transformer? Oh, Power Ranger. Oh, he he thinks of himself as the leader, and he usually is. So he he'd be he'd love the Red Ranger, wouldn't he? Yep. He's like yeah, they're the leader, <laughs> so I'm the Red Power Ranger. <laughs> um. So, you know, as it's all kind of like going, uh, you know, seemingly well now with Appa coming in, um, the wolf then proceeds to throw up a cloud of moth wasps and it just starts swarming over everyone and it's just getting so out of hand. Um, I personally felt like because we've been playing a lot of D&D, especially for the uh, Avatar one shot and it's just like or the Avatar campaign and I felt like this feels like a lair action of the spirit wolf uh-huh. where it's just like all right um, the spirit wolf throws up a bunch of moth wasps I need everybody to make a constitution saving throw to see if you don't choke on the moth wasps <laughs> yeah and there's always just that one person who's like can I try and seduce the, <laughs> the spirit wolf, the yes. moth wasps, oh, or the, the spirit wasps. wolf? Oh yeah, that they try anything. Just like, like, oh, um, okay, roll charisma, <laughs> solid twenty. Nice. I seduce everyone. <laughs> so Azula tells Zuko to free her so that she can help. Um, she's like, look, you need my help. Clearly, with this. Uh, he does so, and she creates a ball of lightning that she shoots off into the distance, and the moth wasps pursue it. As Azula turns around, fingers smoking and hands outstretched. You're welcome. <laughs> Again, I love this Azula so oh much. Like yeah. I, I want the cheeky travel companion who finds a way to redeem herself, and like yes. it's like doing these things, but. And a lot of it, too, comes from the fact that we heard Ernie has tweet about the potential fourth season of Avatar. Mm. Um, that it was supposed to include a redemption arc for Azula. And it's just, it's just sad. Mm. Damn you, Shyamalan. <laughs> 
So we get into the final scene of this part. Uh, they are all camped out. Sokka and Zuko are sitting by the campfire as Azula lies nearby, shivering and muttering, my own mind, you've turned my own mind against me. Sokka expresses some caution with allowing Azula to remain unbound as he goes over to rest a blanket on top of Katara and Momo, like the two of them cuddling together is the cutest thing. It reminds me of me and my cat. I love it so much. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Um, And Zuko says, even after all those snowballs to your forehead, you still look out for her. Sokka responds by saying, I throw witticisms at her. She throws snowballs at me. The relationship works. Zuko's just like, sounds like you're getting kind of the short end of the deal on this. And Sokka says, Katara is my sister. When it comes to her, I don't mind getting the short end of the deal. Oh, (laughs) such a softie. Yes. Zuko then looks back to Azula. And he asks Sokka for another blanket. He goes to place it on her. And... Then he notices the letter stuck in her boot. He takes it out and he reads it. We then see Zuko standing in front of a dark backdrop with the characters of the letter illustrated behind him with caption boxes below. It's a beautiful page on page 76 for those who want to check it out, but we'll also be posting it on our Instagram. The letter reads, My dearest Icom, It's taken me a long time to admit it, but you were right. I belong with you, and nothing is worth the pain. My one consolation is our son Zuko. When I look into his eyes, it's as if I'm looking into yours. My thoughts are with you always. Love, Ursa. The panel below shows Zuko looking on in shock as the caption, Our son, is next to him. Dun, dun, dun. Yes. That was so off key, oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> what a cliffhanger to end on. Yeah. My goodness. Ugh. Oh my gosh. Oh wow. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I I remember when this came out too, it was like such a shock to the fandom because everyone mm. was just like, like this is insane. <laughs> Everything that we like, we thought that Zuko was Ozai's son, and then now you're telling me that he wasn't. And it's just, it adds such a layer of complexity to their relationship, but also clarification as to why Ozai has treated him the way that he's treated him. Um, always kind of feeling like he is this other, that he is not truly, you know, his son. And. Let's, uh, I want to get your thoughts on kind of this final reveal and then we'll start getting into uh, final thoughts. Mm. Well, this, this final bit, it's just, it felt like everything with the, the th- flashbacks for Ursa and Icom, their relationship, the, the horrificness of her relationship with Ozai as well. It's kind of leading up to this idea of this narrative of her and Ikem to this reveal of the our son. It just it kind of adds to that story of what like we at the start you're kind of thinking why are we getting this look into Ursa's previous love life like surely we would just see the part where she, like Azulon has come to her house or something and go on from there 
but it shows that there is an importance to Icom to this story and particularly to Zuko. And then we have the relationship dynamic also with Sokka and Kintara and Zuko, Zuko and Azula. And it's just, it's lovely to show the comparison between them. Like, if Zuko and Azula had been raised without the competitive aspect that they were raised with and that they kind of weren't competing for their parents' attention um, or, or the fact that Ursa and Ozai raised them the way that they did with clearly favouriting one child over the other, their relationship could have been the exact same as Sokka and Katara's. And it's just, it's kind of sad having those two scenes next to each other of Sokka doing something kind and without a motive by putting the blanket on Katara. And then we have Zuko trying to do the same thing, trying to mimic that kind, caring sibling action, but then continue to then go on to that manipulative side and that competitive side of him then taking this note without Azula's permission and reading it because it's going to benefit him mm-hmm. so so it's like trying to undo all these things that they were taught in the past and they're going to get there slowly but hopefully they they will in future because they've got this comparison of soccer and katara so who knows maybe we'll see it improve in future mm. definitely uh, it, it's i i love that you brought up this point of the potential of them having this relationship that like Katara and Sokka had. And one of the big things again with Ozai and Ursa is that it's this idea that they were never on the same page because Ozai viewed Ursa as property and they were not parenting with a unified front. It was combative and it was not healthy for either of them. And Katara and Sokka were raised with love. And even though they lost their mother at a young age, their father always was clearly there for them as much as he could. But then he disappeared to go fight. And it's this idea that it wasn't just them as well and their parents. Katara and Sokka also had their tribe, their community. Mm. being a royal like a royal family member is isolating because you have to have very specific people that you rub elbows with and you're always questioning whether or not a friendship or relationship is genuine or if it's someone just trying to get something out of you so Let's. I want to hear just overall thoughts on part one of uh, the search here and what you kind of took away with it. Now coming back at it again for a second time. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think what's really kind of sticking out to me the most about part one, and it's going to be like an overarching thing for all of the parts for the search, is just this relationship between Zuko and Azula and particularly the parenting side of it and their relationship with with Ursa like Zuko's relationship is so obviously different to Azula's like he's desperate to find out what happened to his mother he's desperate to find her because 
she was the missing part of his life. She was the one person other than Iroh who cared and loved for him uh, and loved him and took care of him and really clearly cared for him. Whereas Azula is only desperate to find her because she's convinced that her mother is leading this agenda against her. She sees her mother as this enemy figure. Probably also because of how she was raised with Ozai being the the primary parent and Ursa only really being the the disciplinary parent for her. And we see this a bit more like in the, the future parts as well, but the, just the comparison that we're seeing of their relationship is something that is just really fascinating to me because it just shows how different their childhoods were and how the Fire Nation's way of family and family dynamics just kind of, for lack of a better term, messed them both up in a way, but differently Mm -hmm. and yeah so i'm looking forward to seeing how that continues in future Mm. yeah i i I really love that we get a wonderful setup with this um we get kind of a mystery with kind of this intro to ursa and icom um we see obviously the origin of ursa being taken away from her home but then we also see Ikem in the woods with this spirit wolf. We see some kind of connecting factor. We don't know what's going on, but it's laying a lot of these pieces. And what I love about The Search, I think more so than a lot of the other graphic novels, is that it does a great job of creating a a really fully realized story with lots of symbols, lots of foreshadowing, and lots of wonderful payoffs. And we'll get into that as we kind of get into parts two and three, but everything with the spirit wolf, with the letter, with the way that the very beginning is with this like kind of uh, text asking about the story. And it's just a lot of really wonderful things. And again, we get these beautiful glimpses into Zuko and Azula in ways that we had not seen before. And it makes just for such a great, compelling but also tragic story. And uh, that's that's what I love about this. I, I, I'm excited to get into part two. Um, oh, totally. So, so folks, that concludes our discussion of part one. Uh, be sure to tune in uh, next week. We're going to be diving into part two. Uh, so Fran, thank you so much for joining me yet again on <laughs> this one specifically. I appreciate you coming back and rehashing this as well. <laughs> Oh, it's not a problem. I'm glad to be back because I had so much better insights this time around, I think. And we had Shrek references. Like, yeah. it's better than Shrek references. We did not have Shrek references in the first recording. So, listeners, you know what? You are not missing anything by not having <laughs> that first recording gone because there was no Shrek. <laughs> yeah. No Shrek, no, not not worth it, really. No, no. Um, Bibbidi-bobbidi-boo, Shrek <laughs> is for you. <laughs> So, Fran, can you uh, tell listeners where they can find you and uh, also a little bit about uh, your new podcast that you just launched as well? I can indeed. So, for Avatar fans, obviously, you're here at Legend of Podcast, which, 
props to you guys legend of podcasts is, is fantastic um <laughs> for you avatar fans you can find me on youtube at a healthy dose of fran for videos such as why asami should have been an equalist or why restarting the avatar cycle was a good thing uh you can also find me on twitter at a dose of fran and on instagram at a healthy dose of fran for Percy Jackson fans, however, you can find my brand new podcast, The Best Damn Camp, on all platforms, including Apple Podcast and Spotify, and on Twitter and Instagram at Best Damn Camp Pod on Twitter and Instagram. And I have uh, podcast episodes out every Wednesday. Um, and I want to give a huge thank you to Colin for helping me get that podcast, starting with his fantastic advice as to how to get started, how to do it really <laughs> so thank you colin for your fantastic help of course no it's it's uh, really exciting too because i i am also uh gonna be diving into the percy jackson books myself and i love just i love this medium for sharing that kind of just nerdy enthusiasm i mean it's 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 great because we have we have such a wonderful collection of avatar podcasts that are out between our sister podcast beyond bending uh the arrow and now bending not breaking you know these are uh, all different perspectives of the avatar world and it's getting all of these different views that will give us all different insights because it's great material and mm. everything that I have at least found from just my initial diving into the Percy Jackson world is that there is a lot to dig into and there is a lot of juicy good like teen like conflict and drama as there is with Avatar on top of like <laughs> these awesome like deity level consequences and everything so I, I'm very excited uh, to check that out once I uh, get get reading these books oh yeah I'm gonna be I'm gonna be quizzing you every so often it's like Colin Colin what chapter are you at now oh my god oh they're your favorite character <laughs> I've got some news for you. <laughs> All right, folks. Uh, well, you can, of course, find uh, Legend of Portalcast on Facebook and Instagram at Legend of Portalcast. Find us on Twitter at Portalcast Pod. Um, and then you can visit our website at legendofportalcast.com uh, where you can find all the episodes to listen to and also information on our Patreon. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, a patron of the show, um, we have donation levels and pledges that go from $1 a month to $15 a month that come with a variety of different perks, including live streams. Um, we've got our Avatar D&D uh, campaign that we started a test run with that's going to be exclusive to our patrons and we're going to be doing some more live streaming in the future uh, that's going to be uh, exclusive to patrons so if you're interested in that check us out at patreon.com slash legend of portal cast um, but uh, for now and until next time friends and part two awaits let us leave <laughs> <laughs>